now on Food FM, it's time for lunch. Lunch with Food FM, hosted by Alison Swan Parente. This is Food FM. My name's Alison Swan Parente. Uh, I'm the founder of the School of Artisan Food. And today I'm going to meet Patrick Holden.、Um, I wanted to have Patrick as the first person that I ever invited to lunch because I've been a huge admirer of him ever since I started thinking about food and the food system. So, Patrick,、uh, we're going to have lunch together. And、um, I wonder what you've chosen for lunch and, and indeed where we are. We are virtually on my farm in West Wales, 10 miles from the coast and beyond that, the Irish Sea, on a 300 acre organic dairy farm, now the longest organically certified dairy farm in Wales, where we produce a single farm raw milk cheese from the milk of our 80 cow Ayrshire herd. And my lunch, our lunch,、um, is a bacon sandwich. Made、oh, from the bacon of our way fed pigs. In fact, our pigs are fed entirely from the food from this farm, nothing bought in whatsoever. I hope you've got some sourdough bread with it too. Yes, sourdough bread. Unfortunately, not made here, but、uh, made just down the road in a wonderful organic shop which has a sourdough bakery. I think you'd approve. So, Patrick, you're known as a very prescient thinker about food and how food sits at the heart of how we live now and how we're going to live in the future. So, I'd just like to start by asking you about what you think of as your formative influences.、Um, and I was thinking of a way of getting this out of you. And、um, I just wondered what it might have been like for you when you were a six or seven year old boy sitting at the table at home. Who was there? What were you thinking about? And how does that help us think about how you developed as? A person interested in farming, agriculture, food, all of those things? Well,、uh, I think the first thing to say, which might be relevant because so many people live in cities these days, is that I'm a Londoner.、Uh, I was brought up in and around London. I say in and around because my father was、uh, a medical doctor and then a child psychiatrist. And in his medical training, he moved several times, so we moved several times. So, my childhood impressions were mostly either South London, Dulwich, Peckham, and then other places in and around London, including one glorious year when I was six and seven, where we lived in a rented vicarage in a village called Hexton in Hertfordshire. And for the very first time in my life, I was completely assailed by the impressions of a farming system which was really pre intensification,、uh, very few chemicals used. Uh, a rotation of crops, and the place was absolutely alive with every kind of wildlife mammals, small birds, butterflies. And I spent the most wonderful year collecting eggs, which of course wasn't illegal then birds' eggs, and、uh, pinning butterflies. Sounds terrible, but there was such a profusion that I don't think we had any impact on them. That really, those impressions、uh, derived during that year, then on a couple of farm holidays, and then Latterly, more latterly, on Hebridean islands, I think planted seeds in me which then germinated through my teens, particularly、uh, the end of my teens、uh, during a visit to the San Francisco Bay Area where my father was a visiting professor and kind of primed me up to return to England in 1971, convinced that 
the right thing to do was to get back to the land and set up a rural commune which of course would be entirely self-sufficient from sustainably produced food. But I think to your question, it was impressions of nature which lodged in me from an early age and eventually resulted in me becoming an urban emigrant, a back to the lander. Tell me, you were in San Francisco and that was a very, very interesting time to be in San Francisco in the late 60s. Did you actually imagine once, when you were out there that you would come back to England and become a country person? I think I did. Um, it's hard to say the moment when I thought I want to farm, but I think it was to do with reading a book called The Greening of America by Charles Reich and other related books, and also working on gardens in the uh, foothills around the edge of the San Francisco Bay Area that just kind of reignited something which was dormant in me. And I suspect it was sort of almost, you know, epigenetic inherited from my ancestors <laughs> because they, on my uh, father's side, both his parents grew up in Tasmania. So I had many, many impressions of nature sort of passed down in my genes. And it just made me know that I wanted to do this thing. And as soon as I got back to England, um, I got a job on a conventional dairy farm for a year. I just answered an advertisement in the Hampshire Chronicle. It said, help wanted on dairy farm. And I went there and the chap who employed me asked me the very first day I was there, what are you interested in? And I said, organic farming. So I was 20, I was just 21. And I already knew, which is quite strange to look back on it. That's really interesting. Um, one of the things that happens to people when they think that they want to go into agriculture is that they go to agricultural college. Can you tell me a bit about your thinking at that time about whether that would have been a good thing to do or not? Well, I thought it would be a good thing to do. So I looked around to see if there were any agricultural colleges out there that uh, had a training opportunity in organic farming. And I found none except for Emerson College, which is in Sussex, or, and offered then um, a biodynamic agriculture course based on the teachings of a philosopher teacher called Rudolf Steiner, who is better known for his work in education. Um, the followers of Steiner are called anthroposophists, but I had no trace of anthroposophy in me. But because I was interested in a training course in organic farming, I, I joined anyway. And I have to say that that year was very important for me because I learned a lot about the theory of biodynamic farming, which basically is organic farming with uh, extra bits added on, which we could discuss if you want. And more important than that, I worked on an organic farm every afternoon for a year. And that really was a fantastic experience. And it set me up for coming here to the farm where I still live. You were at Agricultural College, you were learning about biodynamic agriculture, and I think it would take us three days to even begin to discuss the cow horns and all of the incredibly interesting things that Steiner was doing. We don't have that much time, and I'd like to really hear about your work at the Sustainable Food Trust. But there was a a long period of your life before then, if I'm not mistaken, when you were very much associated with the Soil Association. And um, I'd be really interested to know how you got there and a little bit about what it was like there. 
Yes. Um, well, while I was um, living in Forest Row, which was where Emerson College is situated, studying biodynamic agriculture, I came across a couple of people who were already then involved with the work of the Soil Association. There was an East Sussex group, and I met the chap who was running that. And I became aware of the existence of the Soil Association, which had been formed in 1946 by a woman called Lady Eve Balfour, niece of Prime Minister Balfour, who was in turn inspired by a book she read by a man called Sir Albert Howard, called An Agricultural Testament. Howard was sent out to India at the beginning of the 20th century to teach the peasant farmers of what was then Northwest India, now Pakistan, about Western modern methods of agriculture, because that was his expertise. But as soon as he arrived there, he realized that the peasant farmers that he encountered knew more about sustainable agriculture than he did. So he stayed in India for 35 years, called them his professors, and learnt about sustainable farming, which he then wrote up in his book, An Agricultural Testament, which Lady Eve read. She set up the Soil Association in 1946 to promote a better public understanding of the links between farming practice, food quality and human health. And the Soil Association initially grew quite strongly and a lot of sort of aristocratic people joined but then it sort of fell into a slight decline at which time a bunch of hippies like us arrived this was early 70s and were attracted to the sort of founding philosophy of the soil association but found it slightly sort of antiquated and fossilized so in our youthful enthusiasm we decided to join and try to shake it up a little that actually didn't happen until a few years later when my hippie commune had been formed on this hill in west wales and gone through a few interesting transitional stages which resulted in its dissolution after about two years. But then I stayed on the farm and luckily when the farm was sold because a, a couple of the early communards, actually his family had purchased the farm and when they left, the farm was put on the market. But luckily the brother of a woman who was at Emerson College with me uh, happened to be staying as a woofer at the time and offered to buy the farm. So we had a tenancy and it was at that time that I started to develop an interest in the Soil Association because we were growing food in a pretty sustainable method way, not particularly perfect, but you know, along those lines. But at that time there was no organic market. So we thought, well, why don't we write a prescription for the application of sustainable farming principles, more or less on the back of a fag packet as it was at those times and take our story uh, to people who wanted to buy better food. And really, in a nutshell, that is the story of the development of the organic standards. And I was entrusted as a member of the Soil Association Livestock Standards Committee to write the world's first draft of the organic dairy standards, which I'm, as you can tell, I'm rather proud of that. And then it kind of got adopted in the Soil Association Organic Standards, and then it went to the EU, and then it became sort of globalised. But I as a volunteer worked for the Soil Association, then became a trustee. And then in about 1990, early 1990s, I think it was about 1995, I uh, started working full time for the Soil Association, became its director and then stayed there for another 15 years. 
That's quite a journey from being a, a, a hippie to being the head of a large organisation, isn't it? Well, when I joined, there were only five people and it had just moved from the place where Lady Eve founded it in Suffolk to Bristol to some small, rather pokey offices above a bookshop called the Greenleaf Bookshop. And a friend, of, great friend of mine, Peter Seger, had the idea of moving to Bristol, I think largely because it was closer to Wales. And also it did happen to be the sort of epicentre of the um, bunch of hippies that became involved, mostly urban-based, as I mentioned, transforming the Soil Association. There was a bit of a coup on the council and the young people kind of uh, prevailed and started to put our principles into practice. And they were rather frowned upon by the elderly council of the time because they perceived us as being people who wanted to make the organic movement commercial by selling our food in the marketplace. We didn't see it like that, but they thought that commercialism was the last thing that the Soil Association needed. But we persisted and then the Soil Association grew. And during the time I was there, it grew from about five people to about 200 when I left. When you left, what kind of influence do you think the Soil Association was having on farmers in general? I mean, it's interesting to think that it might be thought of as being a very, very narrow interest group. But actually, if you look even yesterday at what happened with the um, agriculture bill, ideas about sustainability, about um, all kinds of different ways of farming have become completely mainstream. How much do you think that the Soil Association had to do with that? Well, I think it probably had quite a lot to do with it. I think I want to give two answers to your question. Um, the first is relatively flattering to you know, the role that I and others played in developing the organic movement, namely that we became first port of call for media who were interested in you know, disruptive new changes to food and farming practice. And as a result, we got a tremendous amount of coverage about issues which came to, into public attention during those years, like um, genetic engineering and pesticides being used in agriculture and getting into food. And then when things went wrong, like foot and mouth disease, I remember a memorable time when uh, Tony Blair was prime minister and I got called to go into Downing Street and then had a meeting in Chequers and all that kind of stuff. And I think gradually the influence of our, our ideas permeated uh, the people who were holding the reins of policy and power. As a result of that, gradually, gradually things changed. And as you say, the post-Brexit reforms, which are going on right now, have definitely been influenced by our thinking. But for all our work and our strivings, if you look at the percentage of land under sustainable agriculture today, it's probably less than 5%. It may even be as low as 3%. So actually, we didn't break into the mainstream. Right now, today, if you farm in a way which is damaging to the environment and public health, you will almost definitely make more money than if you farm in a sustainable way as we do. And I can only make economic sense of it because I've got a day job now with the Sustainable Food Trust. So we have a situation where the right thing pays, sorry, the, right, the wrong thing pays and the right thing doesn't. Monetary value of the damage done to the environment and public health, which I just mentioned, doesn't appear on the price of our food. So we have apparently cheap food in the shops 
which is dishonestly priced. So for all our advocacy over all those decades, we failed to break through into the mainstream. And do you think that that failure to break into the mainstream informed your leaving the Soil Association and your moving to uh, start the Sustainable Food Trust? Yes, it definitely did. And like all leavings, it was complicated. The organisation that I joined in uh, the late 80s changed as it developed under my stewardship and leadership. And I think grew at possibly a rather unsustainable pace, uh, at the end of which time I suddenly found myself heading up an organisation that wasn't quite going in the direction that I had originally envisaged. Not only that, but I became concerned about a certification scheme which basically is very binary. So we developed, I developed the organic standards with others, and we developed a certification system where an inspector comes onto our farm, my farm say, two in our case, because we have one for the farm and one for the cheese making, spends a whole, spends a whole day looking to see if we're cheating, at the end of which, with considerable relief, we are given our organic certificate. But I know absolutely nothing about whether my farming system had better sustainable outcomes than last year. And worse than that, I've succeeded in polarising all my neighbours against <laughs> me who see me as being organic and therefore sort of worthy and better, or at least in my opinion, worthy and better, whereas they are the great unwashed because they haven't yet converted. And I now believe that this binary system of declaring one side of the fence good and the other bad is not what the world needs now if we're going to convert all the farms to regenerative and sustainable and organic farming systems, which is what's needed if we're going to address potentially irreversible climate change and biodiversity loss and damage to public health. So I was convinced that we were doing the right thing, and I believe we were at the time, but as time went, went by, I think what was the right thing sort of morphed into something which wasn't quite the right thing any longer. And those circumstances caused me to uh, step down as director of the Soil Association and set up a new organisation with a wider remit to work internationally on transitioning or helping being a catalyst to help transition our farming and food systems to more sustainable versions. That's completely fascinating, Patrick. What I'd really like to ask you now is about the Sustainable Food Trust how you set it up, who you set it up with. But actually, that's not the main question I want to ask you about. I want to really hear what you have to say about climate change, declining public health and biodiversity loss, which are the things that you mentioned just now. Perhaps we should start with you describing a day on your farm. Yes, I'll try. So I'll tell you about what's going to happen to me tomorrow, which seems appropriate. Um, my wife Becky and I will get up at about 5pm just before. The cows are in now because it's winter, so we will milk them. The milk will go into the bulk tank and then at about 6.30, uh, Joss, the cheesemaker, will come and he will siphon the milk underground into the cheese vat directly from the bulk milk tank and he will begin cheesemaking, during which time we will do the clean-up feed the calves, some of which are fed on foster mums and some of which are fed on buckets. We rear our male uh, Ayrshire calves for veal, so that's all part of it. Then we will scrape through, as we say in farming parlance, which means getting our old 135 tractor and scraping the poo off the yards. 
uh, bed down, which is with straw, which is from our own farm because we're trying to be self-sufficient in everything, and then feed silage, which again was of course made on the farm, uh, to the milking cows and the young stock. And then with a bit of luck, we'll come in for breakfast at about 8 a.m. Um, and possibly lie down on the sofa for a few minutes to recover. Once we've recovered and had breakfast, etc., and just made sure everything's all right on the farm, I shall get into the car and uh, drive to Bristol, where the offices of the Sustainable Food Trust are based. And I shall then, um, on my own at the moment, because most of our employees are working from home, um, go about various tasks, some of which will involve an ongoing discussion with um, the Times and the Telegraph and the BBC on the current developments in post-Brexit agricultural policy. I had a letter in the Times today on this subject, and I think there may be something in the Telegraph tomorrow. I will go about my work with the Sustainable Food Trust, which is really a storytelling and communications exercise, drawing, as I said, from what happens on the farm, but trying to find a way to ensure that the policy package which England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland introduce after Brexit makes it more economic for more farmers to move in a more regenerative and sustainable direction. And this is a crucial point because at the moment the single farm payment, which is like a kind of social security check that all farmers get regardless of whether they do the right thing as long as they don't break the law, doesn't in any way favour regenerative and sustainable farming. But what we would like to see happen would be for the future policy incentives and disincentives, because it should be a sort of carrot and stick operation, to be targeted in such a way that if you adopt practices which build soil, increase biodiversity, uh, reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, um, recycle nutrients, all the kind of things that you'd expect me to say, if you did those things right across your whole farm, they would pay. And if you continue to do things which are causing damage, either air pollution or destruction of natural capital, or crucially damage to public health, then you'd get less money or no money, or even maybe be banned from doing those things. And right now, it's all in the balance. DEFRA are discussing what to do and what kind of scheme to design. We're an influence, we're not the only influence, but I'd like to think that we're at least getting through a little bit. It was very hard to influence agriculture to change when you were at the Soil Association. Do you think that you have the ear of different people at the Sustainable Food Trust? Or do you think that the whole zeitgeist means that it's easier for you to get uh, your ideas heard? Yes, I think that's very insightful. I think when I was at the Soil Association, we lobbied a whole succession of agriculture and environment ministers and secretary of state. And really our views, although they were listened to politely, they didn't really have much traction. But now I think we are being listened to. And it's not really because the ministers concerned have suddenly woken up to the sense of our ideas. It's because they're more attractive to their voters. And I think that something quite interesting interesting has happened and particularly during covid which i think has been a factor but also the debate about potentially irreversible climate change and biodiversity loss the whole thing that's being promoted by david attenborough all these forces have come together 
And now I think millions of people, literally millions of people, are worried about whether we're going to have a livable planet, uh, either during our lifetimes or certainly during the lifetimes of our and their children. And as a result, politicians are paying more attention to our messages. And the question is, how would that play out if we were successful in getting our policies adopted? How would that impact on the majority of the UK's farmers who through no fault of their own have become commodity slaves, producing grain or meat, often below the cost of production, but trapped into a system where, as I said just now, uh, the wrong thing pays and the right thing doesn't. And I think the answer is that if you take a, a large farm in the east of England, which is currently mostly growing arable crops, that means grains or other, could be vegetables, could be other crops grown uh, through cultivation. If nitrogen fertilizer was either discouraged through the application of the polluter paste principle or banned altogether, which could happen, farmers would then be forced to do what they used to do until shortly before the Second World War, which was have a crop rotation, which had a fertility building phase, normally of clover and grass, probably up to five years or so, during which they built the soil organic matter, the carbon, the nitrogen, and at the end of which they had an accumulated soil fertility bank, which they could then cash in by growing a succession of arable crops, normally starting with wheat, but then it could go down the fertility ranking, ending up probably with barley or rye, and maybe interspersed with a crop of peas or beans or possibly vegetables. Now that system used to be known as mixed farming, and to make sense economically and ecologically of the fertility building phase, namely the grassland, those same farmers would have had cattle or sheep or other livestock and possibly all of the above, uh, because only ruminant animals, the cattle and the sheep, whether they're beef or dairy cattle, can turn grass and clover and the cellulose material within it into food that we can eat. So that i'm just describing what could be an agricultural revolution the scale of which we haven't known well for the whole of the last century arguably where continuous arable farms which are highly specialized growing mainly monocultures once again revert to traditional mixed farming now could that happen i'm not sure i think it could i don't know how fast it will happen but i think the idea that it might happen has the decisive advantage attached to it that there's no realistic alternative if we're going to address climate change and biodiversity loss because we cannot go on with the farming system we've got at the moment which is it's kind of really an extractive industry we're degrading soil fertility we're causing emissions which are threatening the future of the planet's ecosystem as we know it and we just can't continue that way now the problem with all that is that if we switch to those kind of regenerative farming systems, people would have to change their diets and food would cost more. At least the food in the shops would appear to cost more. And the question is politically whether that's doable. And it's all playing out, isn't it? We're watching a film or we're in the film and we'll see what the ending is. What do you think is stopping that happening? I would say largely lack of public understanding of exactly how the farming systems we have at the moment need to change and what to eat were they to change. And I'm thinking here of the uh, Netflix extinction film, 
made by David Attenborough, screened at the moment, which you can watch on Netflix, at the end of which, I mean, I'm a great fan of David Attenborough. I think he's an amazing man. But at the end of that film, he kind of says, look, um, don't worry, it might not end badly. I might not be around to see it, but there are things that we can do to change it, to change things, and here's what they are. And then he goes through a whole succession of things that we could do, all of which I agreed with, until he got to agriculture. And he said, what we need to do is what the Dutch have done, <laughs> intensify using greenhouses and technology and hydroponics and that kind of stuff, so that we can rewild most of the land that have a poorer quality. And I personally think he's wrong on that. I don't think that's what we should do. That's known sometimes as a process called sustainable intensification. It's also endorsed by George Monbiot and many others, and including, I'd say, most of the people who are kind of leading government at the moment. But my view is that that is not the right way forward. What we should do is farm in harmony with nature, go back to the sort of farming system that I witnessed during the 1950s, where it was perfectly possible to produce food in a regenerative and sustainable way, whilst coexisting with all these amazing populations of small mammals and birds and insects and everything. But if we did that, the amount of food we would produce would reduce, but also the proportions of food would change. So it would mean if we adopted that system nationally, it would be the end of cheap chicken, the end of industrial pork, the end of dairy products from mega dairies with cows that never see the light of day, and it would be the end of unsustainable importation of genetically modified soy and all those other grain feeds that uh, supply all these horrible sheds where industrial livestock live. And unless the public accept a switch to regenerative agriculture requires them to change their diets and pay more of their disposable income on food, then it can't happen. What do you think that people would be eating if this kind of agriculture was prevalent? I think that's one of the most important questions of our time. What should I eat to be healthy and sustainable? I think it's in the back of all our minds. We'd have vegetables, of course, and they'd be grown as part of the mixed farming rotation, not just in these Arab monocultures in, you know, around the Fens and Ely and all these places where all the vegetables that we eat are grown these days. They'd migrate back to a mixed farming system. We'd also eat some grain because most of the grain that would be produced in a post-regenerative scenario would go to humans not so much to livestock but then we would also eat meat but we'd virtually as i mentioned give up eating white meat chicken as a staple which is what everybody does these days we'd probably have chicken as an occasional treat it would be pastured and organic of course but our staple meat would probably be grass-fed and mainly grass-fed beef and lamb either the beef from the beef suckler herds or the beef from the dairy herds and the lamb from uh, the pastures, probably a lot from upland Britain. And so red meat would actually feature quite strongly on our dinner plate, whereas white meat wouldn't and it would be much more expensive. And that, of course, runs counter to all the young people who have been told by David Attenborough and others that uh, a plant-based diet uh, without any red meat or hardly any red meat in it would be the most sustainable and ecological diet to eat. And I think that that report, the Lancet report, and all the advocacy by others who are suggesting that we should give up eating red meat have really misled and confused the public because in truth, unless we are going to eat the grass-fed and mainly grass-fed meat from the regenerative 
phase of sustainable rotations, the farmers won't be able to switch. And they know that, by the way. I'm talking to farmers in the east of England today who are saying, well, I would like to farm in harmony with nature, but I know if I did that, I'd have to introduce a, a rotation which would have 40 or 50% grass. And if I did that, where would I sell all these beef animals? The market slumped at the moment. So this is a huge issue. There are some real health implications in eating red meat quite a lot, aren't there? Well, yes, I think mainly positive ones, if you don't mind me saying so. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's been all this negative propaganda about how red meat is bad for you. Where's the evidence? There's not a shred of evidence linking the consumption of grass-fed red meat and even not quite so grass-fed red meat to negative health outcomes. And yet that's the prevailing orthodoxy. Um, my great friend and fellow traveler, Richard Young, cites the example of the very first case of coronary heart disease, which apparently took place in the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary, I think if I'm right, in 1902. And before that, there, were, there weren't recorded cases. No doubt they did take place. And he correlates the growth of coronary heart disease uh, with the decline in red meat consumption, if you see what I mean. And they, they completely reverse. In other words, if you look at the, if you try to correlate the decline in red meat consumption with diseases of the, uh, the heart and vascular system, there's an inverse ratio. It appears that the less meat we ate, uh, the worse the problem got. So in other words, you definitely cannot, there's not, according to Richard, there's not a shred of evidence linking the consumption of red meat to negative health outcomes. And yet that's not what you would believe if you consult the 37 authors of the Eat Lancet report who are still commanding the biggest airspace in terms of influencing young people as to what they should eat. Uh, I think that is, uh, we can say that that's quite contentious, Patrick, um, the, the health claims. But I'm also interested in other sources of protein and what you think about growing beans and peas and legumes and all of those kind of things. Love them. Yeah, let's grow peas, peas and beans. But, you know, I'm a fan of people like Joanna Blythman and um, Zoe Harkham, who's another person who's um, done a lot of research into how we can get our proteins and fats. And I think this is another interesting question. You know this phrase, living off the fat of the land, which yes. I think is a wonderful phrase. And you just sort of meditate on that and think, well, what does that mean, the fat of the land? And I think what it probably referred to was animal fats. And animal fats used to be regarded as an important source of uh, food intake. And most people got their fats from animals. But animal fats have been so demonized in the last 30, 40, 50 years that now um, the, the fat from cattle, the suet, uh, is burnt and incinerated lard has been bred out of pigs so all the bread breed pigs have gone into a decline because the fashion has been for lean meat because it's regarded as healthier and yet it turns out according to the research i read maybe i'm just reading the stuff i want to read that it turns out animal fats are an excellent source of um, fats obviously better than for instance dare i say it, palm oil or genetically modified soy or all these other fats which tend to be have to be imported from god knows where and in terms of protein intake once again livestock i mean the sustainably managed kind not the ones in the chicken sheds which are an abomination are actually probably the best source of plant protein unless sorry animal protein 
or protein, unless, of course, you have ethical objections to eating meat. And I think that a lot of the trends towards veganism and vegetarianism are a kind of protest vote amongst young people who rightly think that these horrible centralised abattoirs with long distances to slaughter are terrible. And so they think, well, what can I do? Oh, well, I'll just turn my back on the thing altogether and give up eating meat altogether. And you can understand why they're doing that. But if they knew, as I'm trying to explain now, that it will be impossible for a complete transition of agriculture to sustainable farming systems, unless we, the consuming public, eat the red meat which comes from those uh, regenerative farming systems, as long as it is properly managed and ethically managed, including right up to the point of slaughter, preferably at a local slaughterhouse, I think they might change their thinking. That's really interesting. Patrick, it's an enormous question, but what's your own personal take on how every everybody, and, and I mean everybody, can have access to better food? You were talking just then about how prices will have to go up. And I'm concerned, of course, about how it shouldn't be just privileged people who can afford the price difference between good and much less good food. I think that you're talking about farming and farming systems. I wonder if you can tell me what you think about really inequality of access to good food. I think it's really uh, a crucial question. It should be the right of every citizen, regardless of their income or circumstances, to have access to high quality, nutritious food. Unfortunately, today, that is not the case. And if you look at maybe the lowest 20% of income groups who often have a very challenging environments that they live in, where there is not easy access to sources of uh, nutritious food, even if they wanted to buy it, um, I believe that governments have to intervene to make sure that that right of access is maintained. And at the moment, we're coming from quite a dark place where most of the people, the income groups I've just referred to, who have, have other disadvantages as well, probably eat a lot of fast food, highly processed food, and the raw materials pro probably came in the first place from industrial farming. So that is not acceptable. But there's no reason why if the government had the will, they couldn't uh, introduce sort of green food stamps or something like that, where you could have um, access to uh, farmers markets or other forms of uh, channels where you can either online or somewhere else where you could buy directly from farmers who are producing in a more sustainable way and link the food stamps or the equivalent of food stamps to those uh, sources of nutrition. And of course, in schools, I mean, this is to state the obvious, if we decided that all meals on the public plate from prisons to care homes to schools to hospitals to everything were sourced from regenerative and sustainable farms, just imagine what a difference that would make. And if we also said all the food of the future must be sourced locally, or at least regionally, because vertically integrated local processing operations produce healthier food and hopefully with not so many margins in the chain, which means that the price point is more affordable. And all those things need to happen kind of in parallel if we're going to move from the highly unsustainable and health damaging food systems that we have at the moment to a regenerative and health promoting alternative, which would restore the well-being of the nation, massively decrease NHS treatment costs, including mental health treatment costs, 
and actually give our nation a sense of its own identity again. Can it happen? Yes, it can. Yes, it must. Nobody ever accused you of not being a very wide thinker, Patrick. There's another question I wanted to ask you. Where do you think the supermarkets fit into this system of feeding the nation? I think that if you look at what we're eating today, the vast majority of the food that people buy comes from supermarkets or in through catered outlets, still relatively centralised and industrialised food systems run by a handful of large, often multinational retailers and food companies. So if we're talking about a change which needs to be implemented to our food systems within 10 or 15 years, which is now what the climate change and the biodiversity people are saying, and bearing in mind that the world is no longer covered in pristine rainforests, it's mainly farmed, so that's where the front line of the, the challenge of climate change exists. We cannot change our food systems that rapidly without engaging the support of the supermarkets and the big food companies. And that's why, even though I passionately believe in relocalized food systems, we at the Sustainable Food Trust are talking to the big supermarkets. Uh, we are talking to Nestle, we're talking to Unilever, we're talking to Danone, even Cargill, because we believe that, to quote a Dylan song, you need to get on out on the new road if you want to lend a hand because the times they are are changing to the point where if some of those big companies don't make these kind of changes that we've been discussing, they won't exist any longer. And I, so I believe that uh, although the changes are going to be disruptive, the supermarkets and the big food companies do have a part to play. And I think that one of the ways that they can do that is to adopt what this is back to the soil association conversation instead of having a very binary certification scheme we believe there ought to be a set of metrics which are used right across the world right rather like accounting systems for measuring farm sustainability so imagine i have a conversation with you and i ask you the question what was your farm sustainability rating last year and let's say it's a scale of one to a hundred and imagine a sort of labeling system to suit rather like there is on you know electrical goods where you have these uh, star ratings triple a or whatever so i could say well last year my sustainability score was say 65 or 70 and yours was you know 69 or 71 or whatever it was we would then have a common language to discuss our sustainability and the ways which we would measure that would be an annual audit with metrics for soil, water, emissions, energy and resource use, nutrient cycling, biodiversity, crop health, animal health, social and cultural impacts, each of which we would have agreed measurements, which we would record. Maybe we'd record them ourselves or maybe we'd be audited. It doesn't matter one way or the other. And then that common approach to, to farm sustainability assessment would be used to, on every farm in the world, just like accounting protocols are in all businesses in the world. And then we would be able to have an international trade deal at the COP26 or the UN Food Summit, which is also taking place next year. And we could have like a Paris Agreement for food where we would say, okay, you cannot any longer trade food into another country unless it has been sustainably produced and a score above X on the scale I've just described. And 
If you do produce food to a lower standard, which of course will happen, you'll have to pay a tariff or a tax to get access to that uh, country's food system. Because otherwise, the farmers who are in that country, who are maybe farming to higher standards, will be disadvantaged. Now, once again, there are a thousand reasons why that could never happen, a kind of Paris Agreement for food. But there's equally a thousand reasons why it must happen, because otherwise we won't be able to achieve the changes that are needed. There is a very short time scale in which change is needed. Um, I wonder how you think that's going to go, how you think that can be dealt with and accelerated. I don't know. I, this, is, this is how I feel about this. I'm a 60s child, obviously, and, and I felt a lot of it was to do with music, interestingly enough, but I felt in the, through, during that period in the 60s, say 64 through to 70 when I was a teenager, I felt that there was some sort of consciousness shift going on at that time, which I felt part of, which I couldn't describe exactly, which was bigger than me. It was sort of personal, but not personal at the same time. And I do believe that there are certain points in human history where these consciousness shifts occur and where things become possible that weren't even remotely likely just a few years before. And I think we're at one of those moments now in human history where food systems change can be possible and the prison that we've been in, the gates can be unlocked. All these people with a new perspective on our relationship to our planet through food uh, will be inspired and will be empowered to be part of that change. Maybe I'm a dreamer, but I do believe this could happen. Uh, there are lots of ways that change can take place, as we found out during the 60s. One of them is economic change. One of them is young people protesting. There are lots of various ways of effecting change. You mentioned Cargill, you mentioned the big supermarkets. These are people who have huge financial interests. Is there something that you can say about how to change things in terms of investing in these companies? how you think that one can break into the fact that these are financial monoliths and what you're talking about is ideas. Yes, I think that's a really important question because in the end, it is about the money. So if it could be possible for the investment community and for the banks to preferentially invest or make loans to farmers who were improving their natural capital and their human capital and improving the nutrient density of the food that they produce. If the investment community and the banking community had access to a set of metrics which would then be able to reveal to them the best investment decision, then you could harness the power of money to drive the change. And I do believe that that's part of the solution because, you know, somebody once said, well, I'm not really in favour of capitalism, I'm a Marxist, but my view is much more pragmatic than that. It's let's make capitalism honest. And what's been happening until now is that the system we, the monetary system we operate hasn't taken any financial account of the balance sheet of nature. If it did take account of the balance sheet of nature and factored that in, then that would accelerate the change that we need to see. That's Fantastically interesting, Patrick. I think we're coming near towards the end 
of our time towards the end of our lunch. Um, I've had two glasses of Pinot Grigio with my bacon sandwich. Um, and I wonder what you've been drinking. Well, I, I've been drinking farm water, which is filtered through the soil of this hill. <laughs> And it's remarkably <laughs> pure and soft, yes, <laughs> but I'm yes. not really, <laughs> I'm not very, I'm not really very abstemious, as you well know. I'd like some uh, strong coffee now, and it definitely wouldn't have been grown in the United Kingdom, because you know I think one has to not be too pure, so otherwise it's boring. But I do think that um, one's own personal relationship with the planet on which we find ourselves um, needs to be strengthened by some kind of practice, which improves one's attention. And I certainly feel that part of the change that's going on at the moment is a growing interest in mindfulness, in meditation, in some sort of work of that kind. Because I do believe that if we just work to engineer a kind of structural change where we simply shift the whole of the world's food systems to regenerative and sustainable farming, without being mindful of the miraculous interconnected system in the middle of which we find ourselves as a kind of cell in a way where cells of the food system or cells of it's a sort of microcosm macrocosm idea of our relationship with planet earth and i do believe that the search for meaning meaning in one's life and meaning of one's existence is is part of the parallel emergence of a new consciousness that needs to happen it's not just about external change it's about an inner reflection of that as well thank you patrick just to end, I founded something called the School of Artisan Food 10 years ago. And during those 10 years, we've had a lot of people come through our doors. And we've done a lot of interviews with people for various jobs and various roles. And there isn't one person that we haven't asked right at the end of the interview what their absolutely favourite food has been or would be in the future just if you're thinking of perhaps even the you know the last thing that you would ask for what is the food that you have really loved in your life well i think of a meal i think i don't want to be prescriptive but i think a meal that one eats that has been grown 100 percent from one's garden or the the land which one is looking after always will be the most delicious food one's ever eaten. But I do want to say something about the School of Artisan Food and the role of the educators, uh, the, the transferers of knowledge in this uh, huge transition that is we've been discussing for the last hour. I think that Beacon Farms, places where centres of practice also become centres of education, are the crucial missing ingredient that we haven't had until now, which I think need to be part of the emergent future. So I take my hat off to you, Alison, for founding the School of Artisan Food and for being part of that transfer of knowledge, because I think without that, we can't bring about the change that's needed. I do think it's incredibly important for as many young people and children as can to actually see what farming is about, to look and see where their food comes from and to have some knowledge about it. Anyway, thank you, Patrick. It's been completely fascinating to listen to you. Uh, I think you could go on for much longer than this, but sadly, we have to finish our lunch and do the washing up. Oh, let's do the washing up. That's all part of it. How wonderful. <laughs> lunch with Food FM, hosted by Alison Swan-Parente.